Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here and to be a part of this very special time where we open up God's Word, we share in what our Lord is to teach us through the ministry of the Bible and the words which He makes known to us. And it really is a privilege and a pleasure. And we're going to look together this morning at one of the epistles. It's called the Epistle of James, and if you don't know where James is and you've got your Bible, a real quick way of finding it is look for Hebrews. It's just after Hebrews, and it's before the Peters and the Johns and towards the end of uh, the Scriptures. And we're going to look at James chapter 3, and as we look at these verses together, they are very, think in your head, they're very, very practical They're very easy to understand. So because they're easy to understand, I'm hoping I haven't got too much work to do this morning and that you can do a lot of the work for me as we read God's Word. So James chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 1 and read through to verse 12. James 3, verse 1. And it might say in your Bible as a heading, Taming the Tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at, ships, look at the ships also. Though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond Yield fresh water. What a fabulous selection of verses that is that that James puts together. God speaking through James puts together for us in in this epistle. Whenever I read this passage, I am reminded of of something that happened to me. Something which uh, uh, had quite a big impact on me. I want to tell you about it. Those of you that might know me reasonably well will know that uh, in the UK I did a lot of uh, police work, voluntary police work. It's a very common thing to do in in many countries where you support your local police. And um, 
as a, as a much younger man, when all of our training was completed and we were getting what's called uniformed up, we went to the uniform store at the police station and we got our trousers, we got our shirt, we got our epaulettes, we got our jackets, we got all these things, we put them all on and we were feeling pretty proud of ourselves. We're looking, we thought we looked good. And then if you've seen a British policeman, he has this very tall helmet, and it is tall, it's quite high, and we put this on and we thought, you know, I really am looking, I'm looking the part. And then we get the protection kit, and this is the exciting bit. And first of all, you put this jacket on, it's a bulletproof jacket that you have to wear the whole time to stop anyone shooting you and, and or putting a knife into you. And then you get a belt, we used to call it the bat belt, a utility belt, and you click this around you, and on it is a, is a torch or a flashlight, for those of you that can't say torch. And there's a set of handcuffs, and there's a first aid kit, and there's what's called an asp, which is a, like a truncheon that extends. And then there's a gas, incapacitant gas, which is not like pepper gas. It's, it's a bit stronger and a bit more violent. And we put all these things on, and... We don't wear guns in the UK, our police force, we're very happy to say. Unless you're at, the, unless you're at a, uh, an airport or you're at a train station or you're a special arm response team, the British Bobby doesn't carry a gun. And we had all these things on, and we went into the police station that, for that first tour of duty, feeling pretty sure of ourselves. And one of the uh, elder policemen that had been in the force for many years, he looked at us and he said, shall I tell you what the best piece of kit that you have got on at the moment is. And we were guessing. We thought, maybe it's the jacket. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the handcuffs or the first aid kit. And he took his finger and he pointed to his mouth. He says, that is the best piece of kit you have because that will help you more than anything else you are wearing. And you know, in 15 years of doing that job, Never was a truer word spoken. It's not what you wear, it's what you say. And it's how you come across. And it's how others perceive you. And I think James here was a bit like that policeman. He knew a lot about what it means to say something. Well, who was James? Well, he describes himself in chapter 1 very clearly. And he has some quite powerful words. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think that's a good qualification to have, isn't it? I, imagine if you hand your passport across. You know what's on your passport, don't you? It says your name, maybe your, your age, where you're from, when the passport was issued. Wouldn't it be nice to, for it also to say a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is what James was. And you know, that's very important for us because we, like James, know what it is to be a servant. We know what it is to be a part of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've just celebrated it just last weekend when we were reminded of Christ dying for us, taking our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. So as James is speaking to the churches, the new churches, around about 49, 50 AD, 
He's also speaking to us now. He's speaking to this church. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to you. Because we have that same qualification. We know Christ. So what's this epistle about? Well, if you know anything about the book of James, it gets a fair amount of discussion. Some might even say controversy. I'm not sure that's fair. But Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther in the 16th century, one of the great founder movers of the Protestant um, faith that we know today, when he was questioning constantly what was going on in the church, he was very negative about the book of James. He said he called it the epistle of straw, which is a bit harsh. And the reason he called it the epistle of straw, he said there's not enough gospel in it. There's not enough gospel in this book. And it's quite strange that I picked this, this uh, passage um, because when Matthew asked me to speak, I said, Matthew, what do you want me to speak on? And he said, the gospel. Speak on the gospel. So had Martin Luther known I was going to speak on James, he may not have been too happy because he would say there's not enough gospel in there. But believe me, there's plenty of gospel. And the way to understand the book of James is this. It's a very practical book. And I was taught to understand the book of James like this. You have a fence, and you have two fields. And on one field, there's a group of people. On another field, there's another group of people, and there's a gate in that fence. And the people on this field don't yet know Christ. And the people in this field do know Christ, and you get there through that gate. And you go through that gate... And the book of James is for those that have gone through the gate. Does that make sense? It's a practical outworking of what we should be doing as Christians. So it's a fabulous book. And uh, if you look at the book of James and you go through and look at some of the titles, you'll see some great practical discussions. Favoritism, faith and deeds, wisdom, submission, warning to rich oppressors, boasting, listening and doing. Very, very practical work. And it's not a parable. It's not an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an outworking of what God expects of us as as Christians. Now there's a saying, as we talk about, about this passage, there's a saying about words. Who knows this children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You heard of that? We all know that, don't we? not very accurate. It's not very accurate because, you know, the power of words, and James begins to talk about this in this passage, it's not like that at all. Words are very, very powerful. And they can bring good, and they can bring bad. And they can change, and they can cause upset. And they can do many, many things, both good and bad. And what James is saying in this passage that we've read together, we as a a Christian, we as a church, we as a fellowship, we as a husband, as a wife, as a child, have got to get control of how we speak and how we use our tongues. The early church, it seemed, was struggling. There was a lot going on. It was rapidly growing. They were dispersed. And each church had various levels of success. And James is trying to get some sort of control as a result of the stories that he has been hearing 
with what's going on. And he was worried. Maybe worry is not the right word. He was concerned with the things that were being said. So he tries to bring this into some kind of control and says, let's start talking about our tongues. Let's start taming what God has given us here. So I guess the first question we asked today, what is meant by the tongue? What is meant by the tongue? Now let me give you a tip here when you're looking at Scripture. If you, if you get the chance to read some of the original words in the language that was written in, so for the New Testament, that's Greek, For the Old Testament, that's Hebrew. Borrow concordance. I borrowed Matthew's, but I've since found there's a concordance app. If you've got your uh, Bible on iPad, download it. It costs about five or six dollars. It's an excellent piece of kit. And it will show you what the original words mean in Greek and in Hebrew. And the word for tongue comes from the Greek word glossa. Glossa. I don't know if we get glossary from that, but it, the word is glossa. And what does that mean? And it's very important that we understand what it means here, what James was referring to. It's talking about a language, a language that is not natural to us. The very definition says naturally unacquired. And why is that important? Why, why do we need to, to, to know what this word means? Because it's describing that the tongue that James is referring to here is not something that just naturally comes to us. It's something that we're effectively working, that we're driving, that we're the generator of our speech, of what comes out. It's such a small thing, but it's very, very powerful. And we know that some of the words that we use can just be passed off in a breath, yet they can have such power and meaning. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And the description that James gives is so so clear. It's like that bit that you put inside a horse's mouth. Now, I don't know a lot about horses, but I know a bit about horses because where we live, we have some fields And there are horses on those fields. Well, we live in the UK, not here. We have some horses on those fields. And I'm often working in those fields. And I'm fixing gates. And I'm mending fences. And I'm weeding. And sometimes I have to move these horses around. And horses are pretty big animals when you're up close. You can get little Shetlands. But the the horses we've got, 16, 17 hands, they are very, very big. And when you're up close to a horse, you realize that if you're not careful, this thing could really knock you over. How are you going to get it to move? It's bigger than you. It's more powerful than you. It has these huge shoulders, and yet this bit that goes in the back of the mouth, behind the teeth, on the gums, that goes onto a bridle, that goes onto a rein, moves that horse with training. Such a small thing that's able to do so much. And that's what James is saying our tongues are, or this language, this glossar that comes from us. It's a small thing, but it can do a huge amount. Just like that rudder on that ship, and we've all seen in the news this week the tragedy of this terrible accident in South Korea where the control, for some reason, has been lost on that ferry, and so many, many young people have been killed. We don't know what's happened. But that rudder 
that controls that ship may have been lost or it struck something. And the picture of just such a small thing, if you're a pilot or fly uh, and you go and look on the back of an aircraft and you look at the rudder that causes the aircraft to, to change direction to your, it's only a very small part of the aircraft. And James is saying that's what our tongue's like. It's small, but boy, is it powerful. And because it's powerful, you need to be aware of it. You know, we're mostly grown up in, in here. There's a few babies around. But we're mostly grown up. But as we grow up, we learn to use our tongue, don't we? We learn to be a bit more mature in what we say. And children are great at saying, great, saying innocent things which sometimes don't make much sense as an adult or things that we wish they hadn't said. Georgina, most of you know Georgina. She's five. The other day she was with her older sister in Waitrose, in a queue, queue of people in front, and she turns to her sister and says, that man in front of me, this is quite loudly, doesn't have any hair on his head. It was an innocent observation, but maybe something that she might not have said when she was a, bit, a little bit more mature, because she learns to control. And equally, I remember my son at that same age, at five years old, We'd had a discourse about something. I think I told him he couldn't have something that he particularly wanted. And he stood in front of me and he put his hands on his hips and he looked me right in the eye with tears welling up and he said, thanks for ruining my life. <laughs> I assured him that I hadn't ruined his life and I'm pleased to say his life appears to have turned out okay. But at five years old, that's what he thought. He didn't yet have that maturity. But he had, so the words coming out, he wasn't really in, fully in, in uh, understanding or controlling them. Those of you that know a bit of history, a bit of American history, there was a very famous lady called Eleanor Roosevelt. She was married to Franklin Roosevelt, and she was a, probably the first proper lady, if that makes sense. We talk about presidents and first ladies nowadays. She was really the first because it was in an age of media, it was an age of, of press, and for the first time, the president's wife could actually be heard, could be seen to be doing things. And if you, if you read anything about her life, uh, you'll see it was a life of tragedy from a very young age. And even though she aspired to great things, there was a lot that beset her in a very negative way. And so she had seen a lot and heard a lot. And she said these words, which I thought were good to quote here. She said, great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. And small minds discuss people. Let me read that to you again. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. Well, you know, I think James knew what was going on in the churches, the dispersed churches at that time, and I think he was fearful that there was too much backbiting, too much sniping, too much criticism going on because there's a lot of small mind work at play. And God doesn't want us to have a small mind approach. Not here, not in our workplace, not in our homes, 
not in our Bible study groups. In fact, nowhere. He wants us to be the discussing the ideas. How are we moving forward? How are we going to help one another? How am I going to look after my brother, my sister, my fellow human being? And the tongue is linked to the ability to do good, to do bad. Let me test your Bible knowledge a little. Who knows anything about Job in the Old Testament? Hands up if you've heard of Job. We all know Job, don't we? Job from us. Not a lot of use of words there, is there, about Job. J-O-B, Job, us, U-Z. Simple name, simple place. But he was a very special, very, very special man. And God saw fit to bring Job up in a way which perhaps we don't read about anywhere else in, in the Scripture. He was a righteous man, a righteous man. He was like Abraham. And Job had a great family. He had great wealth. He had lands. And he loved God. And Satan was roaming the earth. And we learn a lot from the book of Job. We learn a lot from the book of Job because we learn not only about ourselves, but we learn about Satan. We learn about his relationship with us and his relationship with God. And after roaming the earth, God said to him, look at my servant Job. What a righteous man he is. And Satan said, ha, He says he's only righteous because you've given him everything that he wants. You've given him a family. You've given him wealth. You take those things away from him, and let's see how righteous he is then. And do you know what? God allowed that to happen. Some messaging in that for us as Christians. Sometimes things happen, and we don't have the answers, but they happen anyway because God allows it to happen in our lives. And Job began to lose everything. Job from us lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost the things, the physical things around him. And then just to make it worse, he started to become ill. And if you read the book of Job, there's about 35 chapters of this. It's quite hard going, but it's worth it. Because it teaches us a lot about our relationship with God. And as he's going through all this upset and his loss, three of his friends come along. I bet you don't remember their names, because I can't remember the names, so I've written them down. First one was Eliphaz, the Terminite. Eliphaz, the Terminite. He's friend number one. Friend number two is Bildad, the Shuhite. And the last one is Zophar, the Namphonite. And they come along and they start telling Job, you know, Job, what the problem with you is, is you're not right with God. The problem with you is you need to correct some things in your life because your life is not right at the moment and that's why you're going through all these things. And they pour this advice and this constant uncertainty into Job. And what happens to Job? He's a righteous man. He ignores it. He stays close to God. Because he knows that God is allowing this to happen. And then as you go through this book, we then begin to see one of the most perfect examples of what the tongue is. 
Because God, in chapter 28 of this passage, God then speaks to Job. And you know, my friends, if you're a Christian this morning and you're uncertain about who God is, read Job chapter 38 and the other verse and the other chapters following that. If you're uncertain if God is in charge of your life, read Job. If you're frightened about something and you don't know what the future holds, read the book of Job because God uses his tongue in a special way. And as Job has gone through all this, our Lord then speaks to him in chapter 38. Let me just read a few of these verses. They are wonderful, they are powerful, they are spiritual, they are moving. And in, in chapter 38, God says this to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases, on, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And God paints this beautiful picture of the person that he is and the perfection that he is and humbles Job even further and makes him an even more righteous man and returned him to a place of honor. That's an example of the tongue of God speaking to us. Read those those chapters, read those verses. Let me encourage you. So, James is saying that's what our tongue is. It's something we generate that comes from within, something that we use to speak to others, and we can use it in a good way, and we can use it in a bad way. So what can this tongue do? We're talking about taming it. What is it able? What is it able to do? I want to read a a little bit of uh, a couple of words about the tongue. They're not my words. They're, They're words that I found but I think it's appropriate here. The tongue can express or repress. It can release or restrain. It can enlighten or obscure. It can adore or it could abhor. Offend or befriend, affirm or alienate, build or belittle, comfort or criticize, delight or destroy. Be sincere or sinister. That is an amazingly powerful thing. If we can learn one thing today as we leave this fellowship together, it's how God wants us to use our tongues, our glosser. I think it's appropriate that we're at a zoo here today because James talks about wild animals, that we can tame them all. We can walk out there and we can look at Lots of different animals. Some look a bit lethargic to me, but some of them, I'm sure, if you put them in the wild, would suddenly bounce back to, to life, a different kind of life. But we can tame them all. But the one thing we don't seem to be able to do is to tame the tongue because from it can we can bring such good 
and such evil. Adam and Eve, created by God, put into the Garden of Eden in perfection, without sin, without blemish. Given everything that they need. And here we here see another example of the tongue come into play, where in chapter 3 we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. This is in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, and you know, the Satan knew exactly what God had said. He knew exactly what God had said. And the woman said, responding in truthfully, said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit, took of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked. Sin entered the world through words being spoken, activating the desires of the heart, activating selfishness. It does good and it does harm. And you know, you might, as a Christian, you you may read this passage and you say, you know, it couldn't get much worse, could it? (laughs) Given everything, absolutely everything we want, And we only had to do one thing, just not eat of that tree in the middle of the garden. But it gets worse. Because in chapter 4 of Genesis, we read about Cain and Abel, the offspring. Cain, whose claim claim to fame was actually the first human being born being born, Adam and Eve were created. Cain was born of Adam and Eve. And then his brother, Abel, he was the second one to be born. He was the first person to be murdered. And what happened? Cain and Abel were making their presentations to God. God looked on Abel's with more favor than Cain's. And then some words came out. Just some very, very, very simple words in chapter, chapter 4. Let me read them to you. Cain says to his brother, Abel, let's go out to the field. That's all he said. Let's go out to the field. And what happened in that field? He murdered him. He murdered him. His words had intent to bring death. In Proverbs chapter 18, we read, the tongue has the power of life and death. And I believe what James wants us to understand here is to understand that power more. That it's not just a channel of evil, 
which it will be if we don't control it. It is a channel of good. The new churches had a lot of loose talk, a lot of loose talk, and they wanted, and James wanted them to get it under control. The apostle Peter, when he was outside the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus had been arrested, and a little girl, a lady came up to him and said, you're with Jesus. You're one of the crowd that's with Jesus. And he says, no, I wasn't. And he's questioned again. He said, no, no, I wasn't. And he's questioned one more time. He says, no, I wasn't with Jesus. And what happened? He wept. He wept bitterly. And how often? And he wept because Jesus, because he knew he'd let Jesus down. And you know, I think that Peter at that moment, if he had had the chance to take those words back that he had said and put them back into his body, he would have been a happy man. And how many times has that been us? How many times have you said something, whoa, I just wish I could reel those words back in like a fishing line with a weight and a hook on the end. I want to bring it right back and wish I'd never said that. How many times have you said something as a parent to your child, you wish I hadn't, just wish I hadn't said it that way? Or as a teacher to your class, that came out wrong. Or as a wife to a husband, or a husband to a wife, or as a parent to your child, can I just reel that back in? Because I didn't want to say that. Didn't want it to come out that way. Why? Because sometimes we use our tongues in an uncontrolled way. And good doesn't come out, but bad comes out. So lastly, in closing, how does James want us? How does God, through James, want us to use our tongues? You know, to be good users of what God's given us, we have to put our own things to one side. That's what, that was the issue with Adam and Eve. They'd have been fine if they, if they just didn't keep pushing for the things that they wanted the whole time. They want to try that. They were tempted. Let's just go and try it. And to be a good user of the tongue, we have to put ourselves to one side and those things that are generated within us have to come from God. So there's no room for, for selfishness. And in, in the situations that we find ourselves, I think fellowship is a very, very important use of the tongue. What are we like with one another here? How do we share? How do we encourage are there things that we can say to someone beside us that will encourage them? Or can we learn from each other? Fellowships are key. And we've got our couple of events coming up. They are important because God wants us to be together. Because in fellowship, we share, we speak, we communicate, we build one another up, we become a bond before him, a bond of people, as people we are bonded before him. That's good use of the tongue. That's good use of the words that God wants us to say. What else can we do? We need to exercise control. Going back to that horse, 
that wants to go one way, the rider will try and pull it another way. Otherwise, he may go in completely the wrong direction. Or that ship that's being driven by the wind and being driven by the current in that direction, and the pilot wants it to go that direction, he's got to get that rudder moving and get it turned around. And we've got to have control of our tongues. Sometimes, think. We've got to think. Have you a bit like me, a bit rash? When something happens, I'm going to say something. I'm going to write a letter. I learned something really good, especially at work. Never write a letter when you're angry. You'll only regret it. Leave it a day. And every single time when I've left it, I said, you know, I'm glad I left that. I could do so much more when I, when I just sit and think about it for a while. Control. James wants the new church to have control because the things that are happening are wrong And likewise, God wants us to have control of our tongues. That's really, really, really important. And we need to be accountable. Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And that doesn't mean to say our words get us into heaven. They don't. That's the work of Christ But there's an expectation. Just from those words that we say as a child to the words that we say as an adult, what's changed? We are mature. And the way in which we formulate things with our minds, they're different because we're now a bit more mature. And likewise as Christians, the words that we say need to reflect the maturity of knowing Christ in our lives. We sing a fabulous hymn occasionally. It's by a man called Edward Mole. It says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What wonderful words they are. We stand on the foundation of Christ. And when you're on a good foundation, you can do many, many things. And that foundation comes right through our bodies to the very words that come out of our mouths. Paul, or Saul as he was, the great apostle, when God challenged him on the road to Damascus, And Paul openly admits that he was, in his very very own words in Galatians, I was the destroyer, the destroyer of the church. That was my job, to destroy. And the Acts gives accounts of Paul and the work he did. And what were Paul's first words when God challenged him on that road? He said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He was a changed, changed man. And as Christians, we need to be changed people. Changed people before God. So I hope as you look at the book of James, you see it as a a practical outworking of our Christian faith. That it would teach us things Some very practical things. I don't believe Martin Luther's words are accurate. It's a very valuable epistle. 
very important for us. And the things that we learn in this passage, we can share, that we can encourage, that we can build up, and that we set a standard for our lives as we seek to please God more. What is the tongue? It's the language that we use, that we generate ourselves. What can it do? It can do good and bad. How should we use it? To glorify God. Not to glorify us, to glorify God. Let's pray together. Dear God, we are in awe of you as we come before your word. We come before you in our worship, in song, and in prayer, and in fellowship. And we are reminded of your magnificence, of how you care for us. And we pray now, Lord, that you will give us the understanding, the commitment in our hearts to go from this place charged by you, that you will give us the desire in our hearts to be able to speak civilly with one another, with words of encouragement, that you will give us the means in our lives to be able to share the work that you have done in dying for us. And we would ask these things now in your wonderful and your precious name. Amen.